decisiveness is a very reasonable obedience. It's, it's reasonable because when you think at the stakes, at the magnitude of what is entailed with the call of discipleship, I, I often say this. I often say that you will, we will look back millions of years from now, billions of years from now, trillions of years from now, at the, at the causes of hesitation and indecision, and we will think like, they were so trivial. What in the world were we thinking? Grace and peace, everyone. Good to be here. Um, it's, um, it's nice to be back in Boston. Uh, I, uh, I enjoyed my time in Alberta a lot, but it's also good to, to be here with all of you. So we're going to be continuing in our series through Matthew here. And so if you could open up to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be reading verses 9 to 17. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. Okay. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today asking to understand this difficult passage. This is a passage that is, is not easy to, to synthesize and understand, but I know contains many, many treasures and many valuable insights. Father, as we gather here to learn from Jesus, I pray that you would help us to, to see what Jesus is really saying and the incredible beauty of what he has uh, shown us here through these demonstrations of, of life. Father, I pray that your word would come alive, and I pray that we would have a fresh and, and more full understanding of the, the kingdom demonstration that we have right here in these very words. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so last time, I, I won't draw it up on the board, but I drew up the, the structural diagram of Matthew 5 through Matthew 9. And I hope you can do that still. I won't take the time to do that. But you remember the, the diptych, and I walked through all that, and the two panels there. It's, it's actually very important to understand fully what's going on here in the light of that that structure. Like I said, I won't review that because I just did that fairly recently. But I will say that in this section, Matthew 8 to Matthew 9, we see this alternating pattern of miracles with instruction on discipleship. And so we just saw in the previous section the healing of the paralytic. So it's the story where from other synoptic gospels we know that they dig a hole through the, through the roof and they they lower the paralytic down, and Jesus heals the paralytic. And then immediately after that, we see here a passage on discipleship. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to put this all together here. Before we jump into the passage, though, I do want to just talk a tiny bit about tax collectors. I think most of us know a little bit about tax collectors. It's, it's widely known that tax collectors were despised and they were despised not just by Jews but even by Romans Uh, there's a a lot of really great writing on this this topic Uh, one early church author called their business robbery under cloak of law and what they would do to secure this office of being a tax collector is they would pay the equivalent in today's currency of millions of dollars I kid you not uh, and not low millions, like high millions, to be able to secure this role of, of being a tax collector. And then they would gouge people uh, and get them to pay exorbitant amounts of money. David Brousseau uh, writes about how what tax collectors would do, for example, is they would find a family where someone had just died, and the tax collector would take the body away of this person who just died, and they would abuse the body until the family paid a large sum of money to, to give a proper burial to that, that relative. So pretty despicable tactics there. They would do whatever it took to gain money. So they had a lot of wealth, but little morals. And this naturally explains why they were so hated. Okay, so now here we are in this passage. And uh, Jesus is is moving on. He's walking away from the scene where there was the healing that he just did of this paralytic, and he 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 sees Matthew. So this is the first time that Matthew's mentioned. So we've been reading Matthew, but finally we see his own name inserted into the book. So it'd be interesting to imagine Matthew writing this, imagining uh, remembering this moment, and. It says that Matthew is, is uh, sitting in the New King James, sitting at the tax office. I think it's very interesting. I think it's just incredibly interesting because we saw before in Matthew chapter 4, if you remember, when Jesus called Simon and Andrew and James and John, they were doing, they were fishing, right? They were in the middle of fishing. And here we have another individual who's just in the middle of his ordinary job, And he gets interrupted. His job is interrupted by the call of Jesus to follow him. Uh, 
we, from Mark, the, the same account is given in Mark and in, and in Luke. We know that this booth is right on the Sea of Galilee. And so you can picture that probably Matthew would be collecting revenue from people who are fishers, uh, most likely given the location. And I just want to point this out because not all of you are here for this, but uh, it's an observation from the early church that, that David Berceau amplified in a message that he gave actually right here uh, where I'm standing uh, that I think only a handful of people here in the room were, were around for that. But it's very interesting because in Mark and in Luke's account, they refer to this person as Levi, not as Matthew. They call him Levi. But then Mark and Luke, when they give the list, the list of the 12 apostles, they list Matthew. So they describe this person over here who's called by Jesus as Levi, but then when they give the list of the apostles, they call him Matthew. And then the flip side is that Matthew describes himself as Matthew here. He puts his own name in this account of him being called. And then when he lists the 12, he also puts Matthew in, but he puts in a little detail that the others don't put in where he says Matthew, the tax collector. So why is this so important and interesting? And again, Chrysostom actually was the first one who observed this, but David Brousseau gave a brilliant message, which you haven't heard it, you should listen to it. I think it's called What True Greatness Looks Like. And it's one of my favorite messages of his. And what he points out is that because tax collecting was like so vile and so dishonorable that his fellow apostles and fellow writers they, they protected his honor by, by using the name Levi in that story. Most people in the ancient world had two names. You know, Simon and Cephas would be an example, Saul, Paul. Uh, and, and here, what, what the other apostles do is they use Matthew's other name just because they're trying to protect his honor. And it's almost as if they're, they're like, okay, there's this story here about this person named Levi, but then the, 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 we have this apostle, his name is Matthew, Right? I think it's really, really interesting here how how strongly they're trying to protect the honor of one another. But then Matthew, when he writes about himself, he puts it front and center. Hey, everyone, I was a tax collector here. And and I like David Brousseau's analogy here. He says when he gives the list, it's like saying when he lists the 12, there was Matthew, the used car salesman. Uh, I think it's it's a really good way of understanding that. So it's an amazing demonstration, actually, of very deep humility that you have to sort of dig to find, right? It's not obvious when you first read it. So I I think it's just remarkable. So, okay, so so that's the background. We have Matthew here, who's this tax collector. But now here comes the call of Jesus, follow me. And we've seen those words before. Uh, I mentioned in Matthew 4, Jesus called Simon and Andrew, James and John. And the word that was used there, when Jesus called them, is it says that they immediately follow Jesus. In fact, that word is used twice. So immediately is a key word that Matthew uses, Mark uses it as well. And here again, now, although the word immediately isn't used, you can feel it when you read the account. It's like Jesus gives the call and boom, Matthew gets up and goes. So these five individuals that were called their hallmark is this decisive obedience. They don't hem and haw and, oh, what about this, what about that? And it's also very, very important to remember that in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 8, 
there were two stories of hesitation. Do you remember that? We won't go back and look at it, but one person says, uh, Jesus, let me go back and bury my father. And then another person wants the security of home. But then Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So we had these negative examples of a hesitating followership in Matthew 8. But then these positive examples of Simon, Peter, James, John, and Matthew uh, that, the, that the 12 demonstrate. Okay, So the authentic disciples respond quickly. They respond decisively to Jesus' call immediately. So that's my first point, is that sacrificial decisiveness distinguishes true from false disciples. Sacrificial decisiveness distinguishes true from false disciples. Okay. And I, and I think, I've been, I should think about this a lot recently. I'd say the last six to nine months, I've been thinking about this a lot, is if you sort of just look at your heart and try to observe your heart when you're indecisive there, I think you'll, you'll see very consistently, if not 100% of the time, that there's actually an accommodation to your flesh, to fears, to, oh, what about, what about this? Like, I just, ah, oh, do I really need to? And you just, you can, you can spin all these wheels as you delay in what, in your heart of hearts, you know is right. I'm confident that if you observe yourself, you will, you will see that. But we human beings are very, very good at delaying or overthinking it or talking ourselves out of obeying in this decisive, sacrificial manner. But in contrast, decisiveness is a very reasonable obedience. It's, it's reasonable because when you think at the stakes, at the magnitude of what is entailed with the call of discipleship. I, I often say this. I often say that you will, we will look back millions of years from now, billions of years from now, trillions of years from now at the, at the causes of hesitation and indecision, and we will think like they were so trivial. What in the world were we thinking? When we looked at the magnitude of the gain and souls to be won and ground to be conquered, Okay, so that's my first point. Sacrificial decisiveness distinguishes true from false disciples. So again, Matthew here is a great representative, a great exemplar of decisiveness. He just, he hears the call, he gets up, and he goes. And by the way, he would have forfeited millions of dollars of net worth in this move here, right? This is a bold move. And I, I, I can hardly think that anybody here would be able to relate to that kind of Forsaking. I mean, that, this is a very, very significant decision that Matthew's making. Okay, so what's next? In the account, it says that Jesus goes to Matthew's house and eats. Now, you might say, how do I know it's Matthew's house? We know that from Luke's gospel. So Luke, in Luke 5, he gives a parallel account here, and he says very clearly, this is Matthew's house. And, and it's interesting. In Luke, it also says, if you read this in Luke 5, we won't take the time here, but it says that Matthew threw a, a great feast for Jesus and all these people. And notice how that's not here. I think it's another sign of humility that Matthew doesn't want to even mention where the food came from. Um, you know, again, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, if I was writing an account of my own conversion, would I put that detail in? That like, hey, I decided to, 
to splurge and buy all this food for everybody? Or would I just like say, and there was this food there, um, <laughs> right? That's what Matthew, Matthew does there. Again, remarkable humility in his, in his writing. Okay, so what we see next is, I think, utterly fascinating. We see a group of tax collectors and sinners that come to Matthew's house to eat with him, to eat with Jesus. Uh, so a group of tax collectors and sinners. So they, they worked not as just lone individuals, but there were groups of them, almost like a company. And if, again, if you think about it, it makes sense. Think about the commotion. So, whoa, we just heard after spending millions of dollars, the equivalent of millions of dollars, that our colleague, our coworker, Matthew, left it all to go follow this guy, Jesus, what's going on here? Like, what's the story? And so, so Matthew apparently seizes on this moment and opens up his home to have his colleagues come and meet Jesus. Okay, so it's easy to go quickly over this, so I, I, I don't want to miss this point, so let's, I'm going to flesh this out a little bit more here by saying that we are, we are, at the same time, recipients of Jesus' ministry as well as agents of Jesus' ministry. So what do I mean by that? So basically, in like the previous verse, or previous two verses, Matthew was called by Jesus, follow me. But now, Matthew is calling others into his home to meet Jesus, right? In very close proximity, we see both side by side, this juxtaposition. Okay, so my second point is that throughout our lives, and I'll develop this more, we are both recipients and agents, extenders, let's use the word agents though, agents of Jesus' ministry, okay? So both recipients, so on the receiving side, as well as agents on the giving side of Jesus' ministry, okay? So I will say that some people identify much more with one side or the other. This is a very interesting question to ask yourself, even right now. Do you identify yourself more as a recipient of Jesus' ministry or as an agent of Jesus' ministry? Now, I'm saying they're both, they both should be true, but it's crucial to incorporate both into our thinking. So if you just think of yourself or you primarily think of yourself as a recipient of Jesus' ministry, you're, you're going to tend to be more passive because you don't you're not really thinking of yourself as this extender this agent this person who has this mandate to enlarge Jesus' ministry right you're you're going to be more on the receiving side on the flip side if you just think of yourself more as an agent as a soldier as an extender of Jesus' ministry you're going to tend to be more arrogant because you're going to miss the need that you have from Jesus. Am I making sense here? Right? So this is a really important, and I'm not trying to say one is more important than the other, that we we need to have both simultaneously. So again, you can think about this and learn a lot from your, learn a lot about yourself by thinking, how do I, in my mind, how do I think of myself relative to Jesus' ministry primarily as a recipient or primarily as an agent. And you're going to learn a lot about your heart in that. Okay, so, so, here's the, so this is the scene. So everyone's there. Matthew's thrown this 
incredible banquet, and people are like, what? How, how did you do? Matthew, what's going on? You just left millions of dollars to follow this, this rabbi, and a few other people are doing this. What, what's going on here? All right. It's this, in this scene that on comes to the stage the Pharisees. And the Pharisees see Jesus dining with tax collectors and sinners, and they challenge it. They wonder how such a holy person, supposedly holy person, could feast and dine with such questionable people. Okay, so we need to remember that the Pharisees, you know, it's, it's very easy to throw stones at the Pharisees, but we need to remember that they were a reform movement of Judaism, right? They, they were concerned that people were becoming lukewarm. Uh, this group developed in the intertestamental period, and they were bothered by all this just like blah that they saw around them in Judaism, right? And they wanted to bring Judaism back to holiness and devotion and piety, right? And that's a good impulse. I think we can all say that's like that's a really good impulse. The, the, the direction that they took that impulse, though, was to believe that holiness and devotion to God entailed isolation from sinners. And again, I, I think we can even sympathize with that because there are parts of the Torah where, for example, you can't approach the tabernacle if you're in some kind of unclean state, right? You have to go through all these, these rituals and washings. You have to be devoted to God. And then there's books like Ezra and Nehemiah. Wow, you read those books, and it's all about, like, we got to separate from those pagans. They're just destroying, you know, they're taking down our purity and, you know, build walls and all that. And, and so those books have a, a more negative portrait of sinners. And so, so again, I, I, I could see, I could totally understand, and I, I, I want everyone here to not be just like, like, those messed up Pharisees, how in the world could they believe that? But to actually like see, like, yeah, I get how people can come to that. And a lot of religious groups today emphasize isolation from sinners, much more so than identification with sinners. And, and so, so here is the supposedly great holy Jewish teacher who's dining with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees come at this and they're saying like, what's going on? This is not what Jesus should be doing. To eat with someone was to, was to consider them as, as like, almost like fellowship partners. You were, you were identifying with them in a very profound way. Okay, so Jesus' response, as always, is brilliant. I, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last couple of days as I was thinking about this message where he just gives this line. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It's brilliant. And I've, I've worked as a physician before. And, you know, if I were to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be, be a doctor and my practice is going to be right here. I'm just going to set up a little, a little office right here. And yeah, it's going to be great, right? And you'd all say like, ah, there's people here, but... I don't think you're going to do so well as a physician if this is, this is the crowd here. There's not a lot of sickness, not a lot of injury here. Or if I said, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to set it up in the Grebel room at Sattler, you'd think like, good luck. Good luck with that practice. A lot of, a lot of healthy 20-year-olds running around there. It's not going to work. But if I said, I'm going to go to Methadone Mile 
if you know where that is, it's an area of Boston where there's a lot of homeless, drug-addicted people, got a lot of health problems. Or if I'm going to be a physician in a disaster zone, you'd say, hey, that makes a lot of sense. It's a simple but brilliant illustration. And Jesus here, by using this, is calling himself a physician. So we'll come back to this physician concept in a moment, but I want to... Before we get to that, I want to, I want to first hit, hit another line that Jesus gives here. So what Jesus then does is he points the Pharisees to the book of Hosea. And this is one of Jesus' favorite lines. Okay, he says this a lot. I desire mercy, but not sacrifice. Okay, so this is like one of the verses that you really should deeply understand. This is like... You know, I have my set of like favorite verses that are like meaningful to me, but like this is one of Jesus' favorite verses, so this should matter way more um, here. So, so why why is this so important? And by the way, in Matthew twelve, he's going to quote from this again, same exact verse. I wish we had a whole hour just to go deeper into this verse here, but uh, Hosea is an amazing book. Amazing book. Um, Hosea is actually. For those who have studied Hebrew, you'll know that it's, it's basically the same name as Jesus' name, uh, Yehoshua, Hosea, uh, Joshua, or Yehoshua, it's just Yah saves, Hosea is he saves, so, but it's the same basic name there. And, and so there's these books in the Old Testament, like the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, which even the names are like, whoa. It's kind of interesting. It's like almost the same name as Jesus. And Joshua is the same name as Jesus. And filled with amazing prophecies of what Messiah will do and how he's going to lead his people into a second exodus, uh, in a second exodus, into the promised land. But if you know about the story of Hosea, you know the core story here is Hosea goes off and he marries a prostitute named Gomer. And the reason that he marries this prostitute, Gomer, is because she, as this prostitute, is intended to be the epitome of unfaithfulness. And it's supposed to be this beautiful allegory of God's love for his people Israel, even though they're, they've gone wayward. They've become unfaithful. And so... There's, there's many dimensions to this, to this quote here, to this line here. But at one level, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, do you get it? Do you get that the prophets testify that God himself has been wooing and pursuing unfaithful Israel? Right? That's, that's what the book of Hosea is about. And so to quote Hosea 6 here, mercy about mercy and sacrifice, it speaks to the deeper law the driver of the law and the prophets, which are, are about reconciliation and restoration. Okay, so that's one dimension of this quote here, where here Jesus is hanging out with unsavory people. Well, that's, that's basically what God was doing through the book of Hosea in this allegory. There's another dimension to this, which is that in Hosea, Embedded in it is a prophecy of the end of the sacrificial system. Okay, so if you remember, I know you remember this, in Matthew 5, uh, 
it says that Jesus didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Remember that? How he says, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I came not to abolish, but uh, not to destroy, but to fulfill. And, and so Hosea in this line where he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, in, in some way is actually predicting the end of the sacrificial system. So if you look, for example, we won't turn to this, you can just listen. In Hebrews chapter 10, we are told that when Jesus comes into the world, just listen to this, this is Hebrews 10, 5 to 7, sacrifices and offerings you have not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, see God, I've come to do your will. Okay, so hopefully there you can hear this This signal that sacrifice is not really what God intended and Hebrews is all about how sacrifices are coming to an end and have come to an end because of the one true sacrifice. So for this reason, the whole orientation, the whole hermeneutical center of Judaism was about to come crashing down. So I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is also powerful because with Jesus, it signals the change of covenants. There's, there's a final subpoint on this verse here that I want to mention, which is that mercy for Jesus here, what is mercy here for Jesus? If people read over this and don't think about it, mercy here is outreach to tax collectors and sinners, Right? So, I've said this so many times, I'm going to say it again. The, in Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, we have the Sermon on the Mount lived out. Called it the Sermon on the Move, right? Another author mentioned that. It's, it's, the kingdom was proclaimed in Matthew 5 to 7, and now it's embodied in 8 to 9. And Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. And here is the time where Jesus quotes that same word, Eleos in Greek, and says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the context of that is basically evangelism or outreach, right? That's what it is. Now, when you think of blessed are the merciful for they will obtain mercy, what do you think of? Do you think of of that? So I hope that you're catching that for Jesus, evangelism and outreach to sinners is mercy. And basically what he's saying is that, and this is a very profound point, I think, that the sacrificial system used to be what separated Jews from the world, from from the pagans, from the Gentiles. But this is my third point, that mercy and outreach constitute the true separation for Jesus' followers. Okay? So this is a big idea. We, We, you hear this word used a lot like separation from the world and things like that, right? What Jesus is basically saying here is that the old system, the Hosea 6-6 system, was premised on, on a system of sacrifice and cleansing and rituals and all that. But he's saying now that there's something else that, he de- that God desires, which is mercy, which looks like outreach to tax collectors and sinners. Okay. So while the Pharisees wanted their holiness to be premised on various forms of rule keeping, and some of those rules may even have been good rules, 
They may have. And they may have had even a noble motivation. Here, Jesus is saying here, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So every time you hear, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Every time you hear, blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. You should think of this story. Because that's the context, right? That's what is intended to be embodying that. I think this is amazing. All right. Next. There's, there's more to this because I, I think if I just said that, a lot of people could, could fall into what's, what's often labeled, and it's, a, it's kind of a confusing term, but what's often labeled friendship evangelism, right? And friendship evangelism is like, oh, I'm just going to go hang out with my friends and they're going to go to the bar. I'm going to go hang out with them in the bar. They're going to go to the Red Sox game. I'm going to go hang out with the Red Sox game. We're just going to go and be chums. And... And they would, they would use phrases like I just used and say, see, see, that's right. But it's incomplete because, of course, the very next line is, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to hang out. To repentance, right? I have not call, come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And, and I'm just going to say a really quick note on this. Depending on the Bible translation you're using, that may not be there or not. It's in the King James and New King James because it's in the majority text or the Byzantine text. If you're looking at like the ESV or NIV or something like that, it'll just say, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. Even if you, okay, and I'm, as you all know, I'm a strong advocate of the Byzantine or majority text, but, but even if you don't, you're not in that camp, in Luke 5, 32, where, Jesus describes this, or where Luke describes the same scene, he quotes Jesus and he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance in all the manuscripts, Byzantine and Alexander. So it's definitely there. He definitely said it. Um, if you want to pull it from Luke, you can pull it from Luke, but I think it's here as well. Okay, so my fourth point is that Christian evangelism, Jesus' evangelism and fellowship with sinners is aimed at repentance. So his, his, another response to the Pharisees is, hey, I'm not here just to hang out with people, just to like, have a jolly old good time and just party up here. I'm calling people to repentance, right? And we see that most profoundly. And Luke, again, this is yet another example of Matthew's humility here. This is like the fourth example. In Luke, it says that Matthew left, left it all behind. Matthew doesn't actually record that here. Um, so it's very interesting. And if you remember, when Jesus eats with another tax collector, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus ends up giving away nearly all of his money. A lot of people say half, but, but he had to hold back some because he said he was going to give fourfold back to those that he cheated. And so who knows how much that was. It was probably basically everything that he gave away. So, so in, in both cases, uh, in Matthew's case and in Zacchaeus's case, it's not just, the goal is not just friendship as, as a dead end or as an end unto itself. The goal is repentance. Okay. So, really, really important. Now, I will also say here that when you, when you look at how Jesus uses this language here, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's, there's an ironic use of righteous, right? Because, of course, the Pharisees are the people that are the, the quote, the righteous ones here that don't really have a, a perceived need for Jesus. And so the irony is, of course, the Pharisees were sick 
but their sickness was ignorance that they were sick. And that ignorance of not knowing that you're sick, it is the disease of the world over, right? Jesus predicts this. He predicted it on the Sermon on the Mount, right? So again, this is an elaboration of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how the Sermon on the Mount ends? Uh, With four warnings. And the second warning, sorry, the third warning is is where Jesus says, on that day, a lot of people come to me and say, Lord, Lord, here I am. And he's going to say, I, ne- I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So the, uh, undoubtedly the Pharisees and many, many religious will be in that category. They are the quote, the righteous, right? So again, we're seeing an echo of Matthew 7 here in Matthew 9. <coughs> okay, so, so here we have the great physician, one of Jesus' titles that comes from this passage. And we can ask ourselves, why aren't more people healed? Well, reason number one is that most people don't know that they are sick. They just don't know it. And this is, as I said, the greatest tragedy of the world many times over. It's, it's very clear from, we've talked, I gave a sermon about this, about when you look at, at how Jesus speaks about this, that the vast majority of the religious world is, is sick and, and dead, but has no idea. There's, there's, another, uh, there's another really interesting line, too. This, I, I think about this line all the time. You know, as I mentioned, I, I used to be a physician. Used to be a, I guess I technically still am, but I'm not practicing. But, but it, I, I remember one of, the, one of my huge disappointments I had. I, when I, I remember when I started medical school, I thought I was going to be, okay, you're going to find some sick person. You're going to figure out what's wrong with them. You're going to diagnose them. You're going you're gonna, to like, give them the medicine to get them back on their feet. They're going to say, thanks, doctor. And they're going to go off and like, live this healthy life. And it's going to be beautiful. And like, man, that came crashing down so fast during my third year of med school where I remember time and time and time and time again, uh, I did my internal medicine at Mass General Hospital, and time and time again, I would hear I would be admitting patients, and it would be a 55-year-old man being admitted with left ch- uh, left upper uh, chest pain, radiating to the arms and jaw, history of high cholesterol and hypertension, <clears throat> rule out MI, rule out heart attack, and you do like 50 of these in no in just a short amount of time. And then you go through, you go to these heroic ventures to get people better. And so many people, when it's all said and done, it's like, how, how, how soon can I, till I can go back and enjoy my Big Macs again? How soon? How long till I can go back to that whole world, right? And they just, they want a pill so they can go back and go into their former lifestyle. I remember another woman took care of, it was actually the very first patient I ever, uh, ever seriously took care of. She had COPD. COPD is a, a complication of smoking. And she was admitted for two weeks, two weeks. And we gave her IV steroids, intubated the whole nine yards. And after two weeks, sent her home. You know, I, we were all like, yeah, this is great. We finally got her back on her feet. She smoked the next day and was admitted the next day. It's like, what is this, right? The reality is, is that this question that Jesus poses to, to, uh, to people right before he, he heals them, he says, do you want to be made well? 
You know, and like when I, when, I, when I was young, I used to hear that question and think, of course, doesn't everyone want to be made well? But now I believe that most people don't want to be made well. That's the paradox, right? That most people actually love their sickness. And they, they kind of give you this, this, these nice phrases and language that they don't, but most people love their sicknesses. In addition, people want to self-heal. They, they don't look properly to the, the one who is the great physician. And they don't want to take the medicine which Jesus prescribes. I spent a lot of time this past weekend with various groups of people talking about confession. You know, confession is something where there's a promise. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. There's a powerful promise in that. And how the vast majority of people, if you think about here's, here's where accurate confession lies, most people are shading over to the side to make them look better than they really are and not really fully disclosing what's going on in their lives. And there's a, there's a self-righteousness in that, right? There's a, there's a like, ah, I don't want to do that. But like, that's the medicine that Jesus prescribes. And also, people don't have confidence, frankly, in the physician. They don't have confidence in Jesus. They have more confidence in their own self-righteousness and efforts. Okay, so that's this first section here. And I'll, I'll go more quickly through the second part. There's this, there's this other section, which when you first read it, you might think, like, how in the world is this connected? But it's actually very connected. So in, in verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do you, we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so that's probably triggered by the fact that there was feasting going on, right? So there's just this big feast that's happening at Matthew's place, and we have these more ascetically-minded folks, the ascet- the Pharisees and the disciples of John that now say, hey, why are you all feasting and we're fasting? Again, I want to do a little bit of background here about John's disciples. So we know from other writings in the, in the New Testament that John the Baptist himself recognized Jesus, you know, that famous, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and his Jesus' early followers were John the Baptist's early followers, right? There was a group of people that left John the Baptist, went over to Jesus, and John was happy with that. John says, I want to decrease that he may increase. So there, there was already this movement of John the Baptist's followers over to Jesus, but there were some holdouts. There were a group of people that did not migrate over from John the Baptist to Jesus. And for example, we won't read this passage, but in John chapter 3, verse 26, those holdouts get envious of Jesus because he's, his, his company, the apostles, and, and his followers are baptizing more people. They're just, they're jealous. <clears throat> the, the link between these two sections is that the first group, the Pharisees, have a really hard time putting Jesus above Moses. The second group, John the Baptist followers, have a really hard time putting Jesus above John the Baptist. Okay, so we have these, these two groups here that they're, they're kind of these legacy groups that bizarrely are now working together. And did you notice that? I hope you paid attention to that. But it says, why do we and the Pharisees fast often? Apparently now, 
they're fasting together. They're like now in league one with another. It's also recorded in Mark. So I don't know. I don't, I don't tend to think of the Pharisees and John the Baptist as like on the same team here. But after John the Baptist is put in prison and these holdouts don't move over to Jesus, they're now collaborating with the Pharisees. So history is ironic. Uh, okay, so, so that, that's happening. And my, my fifth point is that reform movements quickly lose sight of their original vision. Reform movements quickly lose sight of their original vision. So what do I mean here? Okay, so as I mentioned before, the Pharisees started off and they were like, okay, we're going to reform Judaism. It's, it's become lukewarm. We're going to go out there and we're going we're gonna to make it zealous and holy again. John the Baptist, I mean, he calls out, we see, we see these sermons, he calls out the brokenness of, of all the corruption and the extortion and all that. And he even points to Jesus here and says, like, this is the Lamb of God. I need to decrease. He needs to increase. But very, very quickly, both groups lose sight of their vision and are now actually opposed to Jesus. You can go through, I I think this is not an understatement. There are hundreds, hundreds of groups in church history that started off with a very noble vision, but then very quickly thereafter lose that vision and they become hardened and it's much more about some kind of some kind of rules or or some kind of uh, secondary thing that misses the original goals of what the movement was about. I, I recently watched a documentary on the uh, about William Booth. I don't know how many know who William Booth is, but he was the founder of the Salvation Army, and it was an inspiring inspiring documentary. I mean, what an impressive individual. I actually worked, I volunteered for the Salvation Army for a year when I was in med school. And, and so I know it uh, from the inside. And I can tell you that what I saw in that documentary compared to my experience in the Salvation Army are totally different. I mean, you, for all intents and purposes, they're different groups. And, and so, so here we have now these, these groups that are, had good intentions but now deviated that are now on the wrong side of Jesus. They're not, they're not friend, they're foe. Okay? And, you know, I know we're more historically aware than, than a lot of groups, which is a good thing. I want us to think about the groups that you have come from and ask, does this apply to your history here? So they challenge him on fasting, and Jesus' answer is very interesting. He says... Um, does it basically to paraphrase, does it make sense to fast if you're at a wedding? And like I think we would all agree that like you don't go to a wedding to fast. That's like the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do with a wedding. Um, I uh, when when we were married, we spent some good amount of time like picking out all the dishes and the cake and like you want people to enjoy the meal, right? Like that's a big part of what a good wedding is about, is good food, hopefully. And and Jesus is saying here that there's, there's something big happening that is not about austerity. It's about celebration. And he, he criticizes here, implicitly criticizes the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist in saying, you're so stuck in your 
ways that you've missed the point, you've missed the party, you've missed the reason that even your original founders would have been hoping that you would celebrate at, right? They've missed that point. And, and basically what Jesus does, is he gives them three odd combinations, wedding and fasting, new wine, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, new wine in old wineskins, I'm doing it out of order, uh, but, and then unshrunk cloth on, on an old garment. So he, he presents these three odd combinations, basically to say that they don't work. Like there's a certain incompatibility here of wedding and fasting. There's an incompatibility of new wine and an old wineskin. There's an incompatibility of new garments stitched to an old garment. Many systems fail. Maybe the vast majority of systems fail because they're in no man's land. Okay, so I used, to, I used to play tennis in high school and college and we used to use this expression all the time, no man's land. So no man's land is where, so there's two ways you can play tennis. You can either be standing at the baseline and hitting like forehands and backhands, you know, classic tennis, or you can be up at the net volleying, right? You can be right there at the net, like a couple feet from the net. But that middle zone, if you stand there and you try to play tennis, done. Like, that's no man's land. You can't stand there. You got to be up front, volleying, or you got to be at the back, rallying, doing baseline ground strokes. And these, basically what Jesus is saying here is that these attempts to create these hybrid systems, these systems that kind of are eclectic, and choose from here and there, they don't work. They fail. And I will say this again, notice this historically, reform movements become hybrids over time. They turn into hybrids. They become like, they're not quite what they originally were. They're, they're still not exactly like the rest of the Christian world. They're sort of in like a no man's land, right? Uh, you know, you, you hear so much in... in many settings, settings that a lot of us travel in about like all these like Trump devoted Anabaptists, right? That's a hybrid system. That makes no sense. Like that is a great example of where you have a system that is an odd combination. It just doesn't work. <clears throat> There's a great book that those of you at Sattler have, who are sophomores and above have read uh, Anatomy of a Hybrid, which is all about this. It's all about like there was this weird fusion that came out of the fourth century where it was like part early church, part this, this um, sacral system, as he calls it. So charismatic versus sacral for those who have read the book. Uh, and he documents about how toxic and fatal those hybrid systems are. Uh, there's many combinations like that. Institutional authority versus divine authority. My final point here is that the new covenant is no mere patch over the old. The, the new covenant is no mere patch over the old. So the, the old age runs out when Jesus comes onto the scene. And there's a certain point at which a garment is so old that it doesn't make sense to patch onto it a new piece of cloth, a new patch. It just doesn't make sense. Or a wineskin. Same thing. The old and the new are incompatible. We can't be living in this no man's land. 
So the new age has dawned here. And so hopefully you can see like how rich this, these sections are, right? When you first read it quickly, you're like, man, what's here? And, but then you spend some time and you look, I'm like, wow, there's a lot here. So I'll just recap my points here. That sacrificial decisiveness distinguishes true from false disciples. That was my first point. And then the second point, throughout our lives, we are both recipients and agents of Jesus' ministry. That Christians are, are to be both recipients and agents of Jesus' ministry. Uh, my next point, my third point, was that mercy and outreach constitute the true separation of Jesus' followers. And that's a, that's a real, I want you really to think about that one. That's a big idea, okay? That Hosea 6 is a big, big, big idea here. Um, I could probably have done the whole sermon just on that. Fourth point, Christian evangelism and fellowship with sinners is aimed at, or, or yeah, is aimed at repentance. Fifth point was that reform movements quickly lose sight of their original vision. And then finally, the final point was that the new covenant is no mere patch over the old. So a lot in here, a lot in here of really important fundamental discipleship content here. Uh, what we'll do is um, we'll, we'll close in prayer and then we'll have another song. Father, as we, as we meditate on this, this passage, I, I'm struck by so much of history recapitulated in these words here and so much of our lives even recapitulated in these words very, very profound, very, uh, very convicting, very, uh, very essential material for our discipleship. Father, I pray that you would help us to internalize these ideas. May we be decisive and sacrificial. May we cherish the great physician and his means as both recipients and agents of, of Jesus' ministry. May we see that mercy, evangelism, and outreach are the true separation where we do not separate ourselves from others, but separate ourselves unto you as, as we seek to identify with others and to call sinners to repentance. I pray that we would also be humble about just the ways of so many movements and churches in the past, recognizing how fragile they are. And also may we celebrate that the new covenant is indeed uh, a wholesale new endeavor that requires new structures and paradigms that we can't merely patch on new nice ideas onto our old systems as so many have tried to do. May we instead be willing to embrace the totality of Jesus and, and the wine that he represents and properly, properly contain that and hold that in, in the true and new wineskins. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen.